Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. Let's stand. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. 1 John chapter 1, Verse 5. This is Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, and we celebrate uh, life, and we stand for freedom, and we stand against injustice. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. The Bible says, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You may be seated. Have you ever fought with demons before? Some of you say, well, I have kids. Does that count? (laughs) In in the late 4th century AD, there was a monk, a young intellectual named Evangris, who went out into the desert in Egypt to fight against the devil. Now, I guess that's what you do when you're in the 4th century and you're a monk. He read the story of Jesus who went into the wilderness against the devil and the desert and he faced the devil head on and Jesus overcame the devil. And so Evangelist wanted to follow the example of Jesus, went out in the desert and did likewise. Well, there, there really wasn't, uh, there wasn't a, a lot of publicity. Uh, there was no social media in that day, no TV, no Twitter, no uh, TikTok or any of that stuff. Uh, but rumors spread, words spread all around the area uh, that there was a monk out in the middle of nowhere fighting the devil. And word is, the monk was winning. And so this guy, Evangelist, actually lived out in the desert the rest of his life, and he became a sought-after spiritual guru for anyone who wanted to learn how to fight the devil. Now, before he died, one of his followers uh, said, hey, Evangelist, you need to write this stuff down. And so Evangelist uh, sat down, and he wrote a short book that you can get online for free. It's entitled, Talking Back, a Monastic Handbook for Combating Demons. Best best seller in the fourth century. (laughs) In his book, here's what he says, that the the best strategy for fighting demonic temptation was to fight with thoughts and belief. He says, you have to fight evil thoughts with godly truth. And so the premise of his book, again, you can find this translated from Latin into English online for free, Talking Back, a monastic handbook for combating demons. Here's what he says. 
Our fight with the devil is first and foremost a fight to take back control of our minds from their captivity to lies and to liberate them with the weapon of truth. Now, some of you are fighting demons. Right now, as I'm preaching, you might be fighting one. These demons in your life may be the demons of opioids, marijuana, alcohol, tobacco, caffeine, food, overwork, self-harm, gambling, pornography, gaming, social media. And these things are demons that you know you're facing. You're fighting against them. And there are days that they feel like that they're winning. And there are days that you feel like giving up. And they're robbing you of your joy. They're sucking you of your life. And you're miserable. And I want to give you good news this morning. You can break free from the bondage of sin and addiction. But you can't do it in your strength. You have to do it in his strength. The, the purpose of 1 John, John states very, very, very early on in verse number four that he's writing these things to complete the joy of the believers. See, there is a fight in our lives for freedom, and it's a fight also for joy. Joy comes from having a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and the number one thief to joy is sin. And, and just because you're a Christian, just because you've been saved, doesn't mean you don't struggle with sin. You remember when Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave? And Lazarus comes out of the grave, and, and the Bible says that he still had his grave clothes on. Just because he was alive inside didn't mean he wasn't in bondage on the outside. They had to unloose him. They had to unbind him. Just because you're saved doesn't mean you're completely, absolutely, 100% at that moment free from the power of sin in your life. You are being saved from the power of sin in your life, but it's a fight. It's a fight for freedom. And listen, what I found is that the most miserable person is not an unbeliever. Most of them are pretty happy living in sin. The most miserable person is the believer who's not in a right relationship with God because of sin. So John here is writing, he's writing this entire little book and he's writing about how we can have a right relationship with God so we can have full joy so that we don't have to live in the bondage of sin and addiction because Jesus Christ, the son of God, came to this earth to destroy the works of the devil and the power of sin over your life. And so what John is gonna teach us this morning is that our fight for joy comes by breaking free from the deception of darkness and by walking in the light of truth. So let's just unpack that. Number one, let's look at the deception of darkness. In verse six, eight, and 10, John tells us that we're liars. He says that when we sin against God, when we're walking in darkness, we're living in deception. He uses the word, we lie, we do not practice the truth, we deceive, we make and even call God a liar. This is deception. So many of us, as believers, can still be living a life of deception. Last week, we talked about strongholds. Strongholds, according to Beth Moore, is anything that exalts itself in our minds, pretending to be bigger or more powerful than God. It's a lie. Because there's nothing bigger than God. There's no one bigger than God. So what I want you to understand, we're going to kind of go back a little bit of what we talked about last week, is that what you believe matters, and what you believe deep down in your heart that makes you happy, it really matters. Because what you believe affects how you behave. If you believe a lie, then you'll behave according to the lie. If someone came in here, you're not supposed to do this, but if someone came in here and they lied and they said, there's a fire, what are you gonna do? You're gonna behave differently, right? 
It could be a lie, but you, if you believe that it's truth, you're gonna behave in that way. Well, so if you believe a lie, you'll behave according to that way. The same is true that if you believe truth, then you're gonna live according to the truth. See, every sin is a lie. And, and pardon me, every sin is a manifestation of something that we believe to be true, but it's actually a lie. See, every sin is born out of a belief that says that disobeying God will make you happier than obeying God. Every sin, whatever it is. John Bloom, who wrote about this topic, he says that the root of sin is not a battle of self-control, it's a battle for happiness. If, you, if, if given the choice, you choose what you believe will make you happier or less miserable, even if the knowledge in your head tells you that the choice is wrong. See, we sin because we believe a lie about what will make us happy. Ignatius of Loyola, who was the founder of the Jesuits, said that sin is the unwillingness to trust what God wants from me is my deepest happiness. See, Satan will lie to you. We talked about this last week, and here's what he'll say. He says, you can't trust God. You can't trust the Bible. You can't trust anything like that. You gotta trust yourself. You gotta be true to yourself. You gotta do what you most want to do. Follow your heart. And here's the problem. Our heart's pretty messed up. And when you and I trust what we've been programmed to think by the world and by Satan, here's what happens. The thing that we once desired, we then begin to believe it's a need. And when you take something that's a desire and you begin to program your mind to believe that it's a need, once you have named something a need, you can become addicted to it. These are good things. It can become bad things because they keep you from the best things. Here's what I, let me give you some examples. In our minds, we say, you know what? I need an escape. I gotta get away. I'm struggling living in life. And so I need to take this pill. I need to take some, 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 some of this uh, treatment here. I need to, I need to get a, a, a bottle. I need to, need to get a pill. I need to smoke this because I gotta get away. Or we get in our minds, you know, I need sex. I mean, God created us with this natural desire for sex and, and I need to have sex and so therefore I need to sleep with someone, maybe someone I'm not married to. Or I need to look at that online that I know is probably not the best for me, but you know what? It makes me feel good. I need it. Or I need to feel loved, I need to feel approved and so I'm gonna post this on social media or I'm gonna stay in a relationship that I know is not good for me. I need to be entertained. I can't just live life bored. And so I've gotta watch this, I've gotta read that, I've gotta play that. I need to have this, I've gotta have it. Everyone else has got it, I've gotta have it, so I've gotta buy it. I need to look good, and so I've gotta work out more. I need to succeed, so I've gotta work longer hours. I need to be satisfied, so I need to eat and drink. And what happens is, is we take even a good desire, a God desire, and we turn it into a sinful need. And that need, when we start calling it a need, it gets us in the grip of addiction. And what happens is it becomes the very center of our lives. Ed Welch, who wrote a book, Addiction, A Banquet in the Grave, said that addiction is bondage to the rule of a substance, activity or state of mind, which then becomes the center of life, defending itself from the truth so that even bad consequences don't bring repentance and leading to further estrangement from God. When you take a desire, which isn't necessarily bad, and you make it a need, it then becomes the very center of your life. And when you are making what this thing is that you have now claimed to be a need as the center of your life, it doesn't matter what anyone else says to you. It doesn't matter because you're gonna defend yourself. And what happens is it starts spiritual with believing a lie. 
but then it becomes biochemical, especially when it comes to substance abuse. Yale Medicine uh, said that addiction changes the brain structure and how the brain functions. The brain has a natural reward system. The reward pathways in your brain function as a way to reinforce a set of behaviors. So actions that help us do good or actions that help us feel good are rewarded in your brain through a chemical called dopamine. You've heard of dopamine before? Dopamine is a satisfying jolt that encourages you to repeat the same action. And so addiction, what it does is it hijacks our natural reward system and our, all addictions produce a pleasure surge of dopamine and it causes us to become dependent upon these behaviors and these substances. So let me give you an example. My brain is so wired that when I eat a piece of chocolate cake, dopamine comes in my brain and says, that's good. And that feels good. Right? And so every time I see chocolate cake, my brain's saying, you want some more dopamine? And so I eat the chocolate cake and I be, man, I gotta, I gotta have some more chocolate cake and then the pieces gotta get bigger. And then I gotta start adding ice cream on top of it. Because what happens is, is that your body becomes more tolerant to these addicted things. And so you got to do more and more to get a, a bigger high. And so I get my brownie or I get my chocolate cake. I got to get ice cream on top. Well, then, you know what? I got to get syrup on top of the ice cream. And then I got to get whipped cream on top of the syrup on top of the ice cream on top of the brownie. And that brownie's got to be bigger than it was before. And what happens is it keeps going and going and going. Or, or we condition our minds to think that every day I got to eat a piece of chocolate cake. Now, some of you say, well, that's not a bad idea because you're addicted to chocolate cake. <laughs> we can condition. So what happens is we take something that we desire, chocolate cake, we make chocolate cake a need, and now we feel like that life is not worth living if we don't have chocolate cake. That's what this is all about, and it's a lie. Once we believe the lie, we then have to justify our lifestyle because here's what I found. Once you tell yourself a lie and once you believe the lie that you tell, you got to keep telling more lies to keep the first lie going, right? Does that make sense? And so what John is saying here is this, we're telling lies and we tell lies because we believe the first lie. The first lie is sin is good. That's a bad thing. Sin is not good. Sin is bad. And once you believe the lie that sin is good, then you got to keep telling more lies so that you keep on keeping up with the first lie. Does that make sense? And so I wanna give you two lies that we tell. The first lie is what we tell ourselves and the second lie is what we tell ourselves and what we tell others. The first lie that we tell ourselves is this, I'm not responsible. What does John say in verse eight? If we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves and truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say I have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and his word's not in us. So here is the first lie we tell, I'm not to blame. It's not my fault. That's not who I really am. Now, the reason why I say it at that angle is because in John's day, John was combating a, a heresy that said that there's a difference between your body and who you are. That the body was on the outside, but the soul is who you really are. And so in John's day, the body was evil, the soul was good. And that's why people in John's day, religious people, would beat their bodies, cut their bodies, hurt their bodies, because the body was bad, but the soul was good. 
Well, the same is kind of true in our day is that people say, you know, what I do on the outside is there's a difference between what I do and who I am. So I may smoke weed, I may get high on cocaine, I may watch pornography, I may gamble all my money away, but that's not who I really am because deep down inside I'm a good person. And what it is, it's shifting the blame. And when you're stuck into addiction, the only way that you're gonna justify doing what you're doing is living in denial and shifting the blame to someone else. And so we just ignore it. Or we diagnose it. Or we explain it or redefine it or rationalize it or relativize it. But deep down inside, we know we're not okay. We know we have issues. But the only way to numb the pain of our own self-guilt is we have to marginalize it, minimize it, because we don't want to come to grips with the truth. We can't handle the truth. So the first lie is we say, I'm not responsible. Second lie, this is a lie we tell ourselves, and this is a lie we tell others, is this, I can fake it till I make it. Some of you, that's your life's motto, right? Fake it till I make it. Verse six, it's gotten awful quiet in here. Either you're convicted or you're tired (laughs) or both. He says in verse six, if we say that we're walking with God, if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Here's what we do. And this happens. It probably happened to you this morning. You live like the devil all week. You messed up. You got, you fell to sin, whatever that sin is, but you came to church and you came to play a game. You put your mask on, you know, you painted the old barn. Well, I wasn't saying nothing. You come to church and you sit there and you got your little halo on straight and you listen to this message, you say, preach it, brother, preach it, preach it. Man, I wish somebody that I knew was in this struggle. Man, I wish they were here to hear this. <laughs> and like some of you come up to the church and say, man, that's a barn burning sermon. Man, my toes, you stepped all over my toes, preacher. You even like being told how bad you are. But in your mind, you think, well, I just can cover this up. Cover it up with some good deeds. I'll be a good person this week. I help little old ladies cross the street. I'll give them a little bit more money to church which we're fine with, but. (laughs) (laughs) Or or you know what, here's what a lot of you say. You know what, I come to church, I know what I did was wrong, God, I'm sorry, this week, this week, I ain't gonna do it again. And you think self-control. Here's what you gotta understand. Being a Christian is not sin management. Some of y'all grew up in church and you were told that the goal in life, especially some of you young people, you were told in life, the goal in life is to be a good Christian. And good Christians go to church and they follow the rules. And so one of my rules, what I was told when I went to church was this, is you don't smoke, chew, or go with girls who do. Right? I was told that growing up. Problem is, I grew up in Kentucky. (laughs) And a lot of girls did. But I found one who didn't. And her name is April, and I married her. (laughs) Listen, some of y'all grew up thinking that being a good Christian is managing your sin, checking a box, 
covering up your flaws and faking it till you make it. There's a, a, a guy that I know in Jacksonville, his name's Joby Martin. Joby Martin talks about sin management. He, he uses an analogy, he calls it beach ball theology. And he says that sin management is like holding a beach ball underwater. Have you ever held a beach ball underwater? Maybe in your swimming pool or maybe at the beach. And you hold that thing underwater. And, and here's the question, how long can you hold a beach ball underwater? How long? Well, it's dependent on some things. Number one, it's dependent on how strong you are. Depends on how big the beach ball is, right? Depends on how strong you are. Depends on the waves, right? Depends on the wind. Depends on the weather around you. Depends on how hot it is. Also depends on how much sunscreen you have on your hands, right? Depends on how much patience you have. But here's the thing. Eventually, you hold a beach ball underwater, you can't hold it. Eventually, you can't hold it down forever. Now, Joby says that when a beach ball comes back up, it didn't just float up. Wouldn't that be cool if it just floated up? No, what happens? It, and it does that. Will you throw me the ball back? Thank you. Remember, Kentucky's a basketball school. We're not a, we're not a football school. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. But that's what sin does. Because you, you, you try to white knuckle your sin, and eventually you get tired, you get exhausted, you give up, and it blows up in your face. That's how some of you are right now. You're doing everything you can to hold it down. You're trying to hold your anger down. You're trying to hold your greed down. You're trying to hold your lust down. You're trying to hold all this stuff down, and you repress it, and you try to repress it, and eventually it's gonna blow up in your face because you can't fake it forever. You know what the gospel is? The gospel of Jesus is a knife. And the gospel of Jesus takes the lie that you can fake until you make and cuts a hole in your sin. And what Jesus does is he says, listen, I have come to take your sin away. You can't fix yourself. But some of you all are white knuckling life and you're losing battle after battle because you're believing a lie. The first lie is, it's not my fault, it's someone else's fault. It's my mom and dad's fault. It's my friend's fault, it's my wife's fault, it's my husband's fault, it's my kid's fault. It's not my fault. Or you're telling yourself, you know what, I can handle this on my own. And all that is, is just living in deception. It's, you're lying, you know you're lying, and it's destroying your life. Here's the question, how can I break free? Isn't that what you want? How can I break free? Well, here John tells us how we can break free. We see the deception of darkness, but now I want you to see the disinfectant of light. How can I break free? John gives us three steps, stay with me. Here's a three-step program John's gonna give you. Number one, expose your sin to the light. You, you wanna break free from the darkness, you gotta get in the light. Verse five, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is absolutely, utterly pure and holy. God knows everything and everyone perfectly. In him is no darkness. There are no lies within him. There's no deception within him. There's no dark side of him. There's no hiding from him. And here's one of the things I tell my kids. If you gotta hide it, it's probably wrong. Amen, isn't that right? Amen. 
If you got to hide it, it's probably wrong. Why? Because sin wants to remain hidden. David Powelson said that mutant things grow in the dark. Fungus grows in the dark. And think about how many people who were Christian leaders who have fallen because they had a life and lived a life that nobody knew about. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is a great theologian, died during the Nazi rise in Germany, wrote in his book, Life Together, he said that the more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him, and the more deeply he becomes involved in it. The more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. The darkness of the unexpressed poisons the whole being of a person. The sin must be brought into the light. The pathway to freedom starts when we stop hiding and come out into the light. And as I said, God already knows. You know, have you ever played hide and seek with little kids? I used to play hide and seek with my kids. And, and, and you go look for them and you knew where they were, but they didn't know that you knew where they were. And so you would say, where are you at? Aaron, where are you at? Andrew, where are you at? Andrew, where are you at? Well, well, every now and again, one of them say, well, I'm not in here. <laughs> See, when you hide in the dark, you think you're hidden. God sees it all. But when you come out into the light, when you, when you come out, listen, when you step into the light, it feels like death and hell. It's so scary. But when you come out in the light, what happens is you see the thing that you are believing and you see it's a lie. And you see the horrible reality of your sin and you see the empty promises that sin has made. And then when you're in the light, you see the beauty of God's glory and grace. So how do I expose my sin to the light? So glad you asked. Three, three ways. Number one, you get into God's word. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. And I will hide your word in my heart that I will not sin against you. The Bible tells you who God is. The Bible tells you what God's best is for your life. And most of us are not choosing between good and bad. Most of us are choosing between good and best. But God's word tells you what, you, what he expects for you, what he wants for you, how to live your life. And here's what I've learned in my own life. And I'm telling you, man, I am, I am a sinner. Like the dude up here talking to you is messed up. And here's what I've learned. You cons what you consume will consume you. Garbage in, garbage out. What you expose yourself to is so important. And so a lot of people stay out of church because they don't want to be exposed. They don't want to hear God's word. But you've got to be in God's word every day. This is why we are asking you to join us in this 260 plan to read through God's word this year as a church. Get into the word of God and God's word will get into you because there you'll see the light 
in God's word. I've talked to so many people who have gone through addictions and recovery, and, and here's what they tell me, that the number one thing that they do that's become a daily discipline in their life is to spend a lot of time in God's word. Second, you need to, number one, get into God's word. Number two, you need to pray honest prayers. Stop playing games with God. Stop being a little kid that says, not in here. Be honest with God. Stop playing Mickey Mouse prayers and say, Lord, I am messed up. I am sinner. Please, God, help me. And you know the greatest prayers, but it's also one of the hardest prayers to pray, and I actually prayed it this week, and God revealed it this week, is this, Lord, show me my sin. Some of you say, you know what? I didn't know I had an anger problem until I saw that I had an anger problem. Show me my sins, because when you pray, God, show me my sins, he will show you your sins. And then I also pray, when I pray that prayer, Lord, have mercy, amen, when you show me how nasty I really am. You wanna expose your sin to the light. Again, it's, it's gonna feel like death and hell, but when you expose your sin to the light, you get into God's word, you pray honest prayers, and another way you can do it is you share your struggles with other people. That's why we have groups here. So we wanna encourage you to be in part of discipleship groups or home groups or have accountability people, somebody that just one-on-one. -on -one. The Bible says in James 5, 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. It feels horrible in your mind. You think, you know what, if anybody ever knew who I really was, they would hate me. If anyone really knew who I ever was, it would ruin my life. But do you understand that when you let sin out, it's not going to bring as much pain as, it, as if you continue with the sin. But actually what you're gonna find is that when you name your sin out loud with people that you love and trust, I'm not telling you, tell everybody you know, okay? Now, I'm not saying it on social media. I ain't telling you that because there are a bunch of idiots out there, all right? And they will use your words against you. But if you tell somebody that you know and, and trust and love the struggle that you're having in your life, there's liberation, there's freedom, there's freedom. John Mark Comer says that a raw power and genuine freedom come, comes when you name your sin in the presence of a loving community. Just the act of naming your sins out loud to people you know and trust has the power to break chains. The Bible says that when you walk in his light, you have fellowship with one another. The only way that you're gonna deal with Hidden sin and broken relationships is you've got to get out in the light and share your sin. Number one, expose your sin to the light. Number two, express your sin to the Lord. Verse nine, he says, if we confess our sins, the word confess is homo legea. Homo, same, logea, word. Say the same word. When you confess, you're not saying, God, merely, I'm sorry. Uh, you're not saying, God, I'm sorry I got caught. Uh, you're not just saying, God, please uh, have mercy on me, although that's a part of confession. Confession is saying what sin is. It's saying the same thing. It's not saying, God, I made a mistake today. God, I didn't mean to today. God, I didn't take my pills today. God, this person did this to me today. No, it's going, God, I sinned against you. And it was wrong. And it was hurtful. It's having the same attitude towards your sin as God has towards your sin. See, when you see the truth of who God is in the light of God's word, you will see your sin for what it is. And the only way you're gonna deal with sin in your life is you gotta attack it, but you can't attack it with behavior modification. You've gotta to get to the root of the issue. What's the root of the issue? We talked about this last week. It's the lie that you believe. And when you see that the thing that you're doing is based on a lie, you then confess to God that you've been believing a lie rather than his truth. Have you ever believed something about somebody that wasn't true? 
and then you function in life as if it were true, and you mistreated that person as if it were true when it really wasn't true, and then you find out that it wasn't true, and then you're like, I can't believe I thought that about that person, or did that to that person, or said that to that person. And what do you do? You're natural. If you're an honest person, good person, you come to that person, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. I was so wrong. It was, I believed a lie. That's what we have to come to. When we confess, we're saying, God, I believed a lie. I believed that this would actually lead to freedom, but it actually led to death. And you gotta hate it. Thomas Watson said, till sin be bitter, Christ will never be sweet. As long as you believe the lie, you'll never go against your sin. You'll never let go of your sin. But when you see your sin for what it is, that is the pathway to break free from it. Because you gotta see what your sin has done to you, you gotta see what your sin has done to others, and you gotta see how your sin has interfered with your relationship with God. You have to see that sin is poison. Have you ever ate anything that gave you food poisoning? Like, and then like, in your mind, like somebody says, like, say, you, say you ate something that gave you food poison, and someone says, hey, you wanna eat that? Nope. There's one thing I'm gonna tell you right now, I'll never eat again as long as I live for the rest of my days. Is Chef Boyardee raviolis. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Amen. You know, brother. You know why? Because when I was a teenager and I was a little thicker then, had more hair too. You know, I had the little cans, but I also got the big boy cans. Well, I got one of them big boy cans. And I thought, you know what? It's already pre-cooked. So I'm just gonna open the can and eat out the can. And I'm not recommending this to any of you. And I got food poisoning. And it made me so sick. And I saw them raviolis again, if you know what I mean. (laughs) And when it all cleared up, I made a vow to God. (laughs) I told the Lord, I will never eat Chef Boyardee raviolis again. What once tasted so good is now nasty to me. You know what confession is? Confession is the vomiting of the soul. And it is changing your mind that instead of loving your sin, you grow to hate your sin. Ignatius of Antioch, an early church father in the first century AD says, it's impossible for a man to be freed from the habit of sin before he hates it. Just as it's impossible to receive forgiveness before confessing his trespass. You gotta express, expose your sin to the light. You gotta express your sin to the Lord, Lord against you and you alone have I sinned. It is nasty, it is wrong, it's a lie from the pit of hell. And then when you do that, stay with me. Oh, it's so good, it's so good. You experience the cleansing power of Jesus. Verse seven, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. Verse nine, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The promise of God is this, if you come clean, you get clean. Now, why does the Bible refer to being forgiven as being clean? I mean, even in the addiction world today, when people get sober and stop using drugs, here's what they call that. Call either getting clean or being clean. We have some of you, I know, 
that you've been clean for years and you, you have those chips or you have little things. And I'm so proud of, of how God and his grace has worked in your life because you, you've been clean from alcohol, you've been clean from drugs, you've been clean from this, that, and the other. Why in the world, though, would we say clean? Why does the Bible say we're clean? And why do we, in the, in the addiction world, say clean? Here's why. Because sin makes you feel dirty. You know what shame is? Shame is feeling bad about who you are. You know what guilt is? Guilt is feeling bad for what you have done. And when you're caught up in addiction or you're caught up in sin, especially if you're a Christian, you will feel nasty and you'll feel gross. Now, in the moment of sin, you don't feel bad. In the moment of sin, listen, if sin wasn't fun, you wouldn't do it. And if you're sinning and not having fun, you're doing it wrong. Right? Some of y'all get that in a minute. The pleasures of sin are but for a season, right? But afterwards, you feel icky, you feel dirty, you feel filthy. And the natural inclination for most people is that when you are dirty, you want to be clean. Have you ever got a stain on your pants before or your clothes? The other day, I was out somewhere and with the boys and it's in my truck and uh, next to, I parked next to, yeah, and when you're, when you're, when you're a truck guy, you, you back in, right? You gotta back in. These, these, turn, these parking spaces are too small. And you all, listen, have you ever been looking for a parking spot and you think you found one only to find some little itty bitty car in there? And you're like, good Lord, they should have an itty bitty car section, right? That's another sermon for another day. But you back in. So I backed in my truck. And next to me was this big old souped up Jeep with big old mud tires. I don't know what in the world he needs that for in Naples. <laughs> and so I was out there and I had nice, one of my favorite pairs of shorts. You ever had a favorite pair of shorts? You just love them. And there was, I wasn't paying attention. I turned too quick out and got that grease from the tire on my, my nice shorts. He's like, you gotta be kidding me. And so I went to the bathroom where we were and I got soap and water. Thinking, I'm gonna get this out. It's just a little dirt. What happened was the more I scrubbed, the deeper it got into the fabric. And there I was walking around with a stain on my leg. And listen, the whole I'm very self-conscious about stuff like this. And I was thinking the entire time, man, everybody's gonna face that stain. And there's their preacher. Walking around, big old stain. And they're going to they think bad thoughts about me. Somebody will come give me a love offer and we'll buy a new pair of shorts, preacher, you know? <laughs> but in my mind, I'm just thinking, all I'm thinking about is this stain. It's in my mind. Like, I can't do, I can't enjoy anything because everything I'm thinking about is a stinking stain and I can't get it out. I mean, I would have given anything for a bottle of shout. Amen. <laughs> The reason I bring this up is because a lot of us, that's where you are. Man, you've got stains in your life, and, and it's in your mind. And you're trying everything through self-help, through good deeds, through behavior modification. You're white-knuckling it, thinking that you can get the stain out. If you just scrub harder, you just try harder, you can get that sucker out. But you know what? The only thing that can get the stain out is the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, doesn't that seem counterintuitive? Because isn't blood the hardest stain to get out? How is it the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse us of our sins? Verse nine, 
if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. Now, if you read that, you would say, well, you know what? If I tell God what I did, then here's what I think it should say. He is faithful and just to judge us of our sins and send us to hell. Like if you went to the judge and you said, you know what? I stole millions of dollars. I'm guilty. Here are the receipts. I stole it. A faithful and just judge would be to send you to jail. Here, the logic of verse nine, it seems counterintuitive. If I tell God what I did, he's faithful and just, you would think he's faithful and just send you to hell. But no, he's faithful and just to cleanse us of your sins, forgive you of your sins. How is that possible? Because Jesus paid for your sins. We love, anybody love free things? I love free things. People will drive 30 miles to get free stuff, right? They'll spend more in gas than the thing that they get for free cost. Now, especially if you're a young person in the room, there's no such thing as free. Amen? Amen. If it's free to you, someone else paid for it. For you to be forgiven, someone else had to pay. For you to be cleansed, someone else had to pay. Who paid? Jesus paid. Jesus paid your dry cleaning bill. Jesus took your stains, he took your sin, he took your filth, and he washed it white as snow. And then he took his robe and put it on you, his robe of righteousness. He took your robe of stinkiness and put it on himself and died on a cross. And because, because Jesus paid it all, because he paid for your sins. The only way that God can be faithful and just is to forgive us. Because if we come to God after Jesus has paid for our sins and we do what God says and he doesn't forgive us and cleanse us, then he is not faithful and just. The good news is, is because Jesus paid it all, you can come to God and he will not be repulsed by you. He will not run from you. He will run towards you and he is faithful to you even though you're faithless to him. And he, by his justice, because Jesus met the demands of justice, will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now, some of y'all are like, man, that was preaching, but I don't understand a word you said. <laughs> Stay with me. We're going to end. Everybody in the world, everybody, 8 billion people right now, knows there's something wrong inside of them. Everyone. I've been to 39 countries and eastern Kentucky, okay? <laughs> everybody knows there's something wrong. You know there's something wrong. Whether it's something you're stuck in, pornography, gambling, anger, cigarettes, alcohol, caffeine, whatever it is, and you're trying to fix it. And all around the world, people like you are trying to fix their brokenness. Did you know that the world's largest religious festival is in India? It's called Kumala. Kumala happens every 12 years. It happens in the river Ganges in India. 
Every 12 years, 125 million Indians will travel from everywhere to go to the water of the Ganges. The last one was in 2013. Politicians, celebrities, rich people, poor people, all will flock to the riverbanks. You know why? Because the Hindu tradition is that every 12 years, the water of the Ganges in this particular part of India are stirred up by the gods. And if you can just submerge yourself, if you can just dip yourself in the water, it will erase your sins and give you hope for eternal life for 12 years. According to the writings, to bathe in the Ganges is to wash away your sins. To die here is to escape the cycle of reincarnation and to achieve instant salvation. People will travel for days, stay for weeks, hoping to get their sins forgiven and peace in their life. And if they are for some reason able to think in their minds they have it, they know it only lasts for 12 years. And so they keep coming back and coming back. And that is a picture of our world that we are willing to, use, to dive into dirty water just to get our sins forgiven. We are willing to do so many things but expose our sin to the light and express our sin to the Lord. We will do anything but that, but I will tell you that your cleansing is not found in trusting dirty water or self-help, but it's found by trusting in the finished works of Jesus Christ on the cross. Amen. Because there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners who plunge beneath that flow lose all their guilty stains. If you are losing a battle with sin or if you have people who are being ravaged by sin in your life, I want to call you, I want to call our church to have a moment of prayer. I want to call you to the altar. I want to call you, whether we're going to have pastors down here, nobody's going to judge you. And if they do, they need to repent of their judging. Matter of fact, if anybody in this room judges another person in this room, you need to take it to Jesus, and Jesus is gonna judge you for being a self-righteous pain in the neck. But God does business with those who mean business. And some of you have sin in your life you need to get right. So we're gonna stand here in a moment. I'm gonna pray, and we're gonna stand. And then I wanna open up the altar here. And you say, well, I can't physically get down. Then just get down where you are. Talk to the Lord. Pastors will be down here in the front. We wanna pray with you. We wanna talk with you. And if you feel that beating in your chest, you need to get right with God. That's the Holy Spirit. And I wouldn't waste a second. I would come down. Father, in Jesus' name, would your Holy Spirit do what I could not do? Would you raise the dead? Would you call sinners to yourself? Father, would today be a day of genuine renewal? and revival in the church. Oh, Father, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. They're gonna sing. Come on down. Come and pray. If not for you, for someone else. Come and pray. Come and pray. 
thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.